The Italian Wine Podcast is the community-driven platform for Italian wine geeks around the world. Support the show by donating at italianwinepodcast.com. Donate five or more euros and we'll send you a copy of our latest book, My Italian Grape Geek Journal, absolutely free. To get your free copy of My Italian Grape Geek Journal, click support us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Grazie mille. Welcome to Masterclass U.S. Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. This show has been designed to demystify the U.S. market for Italian wineries through interviews with experts in sales and distribution, social media, communications, and so much more. We will quiz each of our esteemed guests at the end of each episode to solidify the lessons that we've learned. So sharpen your pencils, get out your notebooks, and join us each week to learn more about the U.S. market. Hello, welcome to Masterclass U.S. Wine Market. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Jay James to the Italian Wine Podcast. Jay is a master sommelier and the president of Benchmark Wine Group, a licensed importer, distributor, and retailer in California, and the leading source of rare and back vintage wine for wine retailers, restaurants, and collectors around the world. Jay brings nearly four decades of expertise across the fine and rare wine spectrum to his position at Benchmark Wine Group. Welcome to the show, Jay. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Juliana. It is a pleasure to be here today. Before we dive into today's discussion, and you know, we're sitting here in uh, on December first, so we're going to talk all about OND and holidays and shopping trends. Before that, Jay, tell us a little bit more about yourself and and how you got into this crazy wine world that we work in. Sure, thank you. So, you know, I have a saying about the wine business that uh, I got into it by accident, just like almost everyone else. <laughs> You know, if your if your last name isn't you know Mondavi or Antonori, you know you're not necessarily destined for the wine business. So we kind of most of us fall into it by accident, and of I course. did certainly. Born, raised, and educated in Atlanta, Georgia. I, I attended Georgia Tech, and uh, this is going to seem like a completely weird detour, but while I was there, actually, almost as soon as I started school. I started playing guitar in a rock band, and I've been a guitar player since I was a little kid. Um, and that's how I got in the wine business. Okay, so hmm. how did how did that happen? <laughs> I, I did that for I did that for a couple of years. This was in the '80s during the the REM years when Athens, Georgia, was like the hottest place in the American music scene. So I was right in the middle of that, and mm-hmm. I dropped out of college for a couple of years to do that. And I decided to go back to school, study jazz guitar which had been a long, long passion, long held passion of mine. And as I did that, I, I needed to, I was supporting myself and I needed a job. And through I, just a couple of weird coincidences, I met someone who had just gone to work for the Ritz Carlton, Atlanta, mm-hmm. downtown Atlanta. And uh, I, long story short, I was hired as a room service waiter while I was in music school. And that's how I started learning about wine. I, I began studying there and it just immediately, gravitated towards it. And so, and then I loved the restaurant business and I wasn't expecting that. So I I kind of stuck with it and I stuck with studies, even though I stopped music school, went back to to Georgia Tech. And as I was wrapping that up, that was when I got my first wine director job and started preparing for the master sommelier exam. Oh, wow. You were busy. Yeah, I was a a busy guy. I did that, uh, you know, I, I just kept my nose at the grindstone on the MS exam, uh, passed that in 1997, soon after got the opportunity to move to the West to open a small hotel in Las Vegas called Bellagio. 
as the wine director, which was life changing. And that was really where I got immersed in the fine and rare side of the business. At that okay. point, Bellagio was one of, if not the largest buyer of back vintage fine and rare wines on the planet. Uh, oh, and, interesting. And huh. even back then, it wasn't right away. I don't think Benchmark was founded in 2002, but I recall actually buying wine from Benchmark while I was at Bellagio. Interesting. It all comes from a circle, right? Yeah, it's all for, all full circle, full circle. Excuse me. And I, I I remember them from back then. Did some t- some years in distribution in Nevada when I, I was with Southern Wine and Spirits for a while. I left that, uh, and I handled fine and rare during that time. And then okay. leaving that, I, I moved to Napa. Uh, I have a a 13-year-old daughter. She was three at this time, and I decided I wanted to put her in school in California instead of Nevada. So I made the move to the wine country and kind of joined the winery side of the business for a little while. So I was VP of sales for Joseph Phelps and prior to that, Chapelet. Um, mm-hmm. During those posts, I actually used Benchmark as a resource to find library bottles. We didn't ever acquire them to sell them we use them for you know trade events and uh you know and, and different things like that where we were going to be entertaining and we wanted to show some older wines but not necessarily tap the seller of the winery and you know here's a little secret that many of you may or may not know most wine or most american wineries have no library at all right they didn't plan so well for for the future. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's it's a combination, I think, of that as well as you know when you when you you've got a hit winery, you've got sales velocity to meet. And right. It's it's awfully hard to say no sometimes to protect you know to protect a, a a library entry for the future. Definitely. So benchmark came in handy for that, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I've you know over the years have been involved with Benchmark and acquiring wines like that. And it was uh, a real great closure to the circle for me to join Benchmark uh, in a, a leadership capacity. Right. And, so it's and a, and rare side. You've touched really every aspect of, of the industry in the U.S. and also different regions from the East Coast and down in Atlanta, you know, on the on-premise side and hotels and, and sommelier and beverage director to distribution and Nevada and then wineries in Napa and now again back to, to retail. So it sounds like you really have that full picture perspective of what's happening in the US market. I've never made wine and I've never really wanted to. I've always okay. I like I like to talk about it and sell it and making it is fascinating, but that's about the only thing in the business I haven't done. Yeah. Well there's plenty of people out there making it, right? <laughs> now we've got to sell it. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Let them let them do it. I'm happy to I'm happy to be their voice if I can. Totally. So Jay, we want to talk specifically today about trends in the rare and fine wine retail space in the US market, but really also what's happening right now in OND and the holiday season. It's been a, a weird year. Lots of external things happening with wars and uh, economic challenges in the US, political upheaval and up and down. And we want to understand how that's all actually impacting the market and, and how that's translating into sales at Benchmark, especially fine wine being such a niche market. Uh, we really want to dive into a little bit more of, of what's going on. So our three key takeaways for today's masterclass, what we're 
really excited to learn from you are, number one, how is this year different from years prior in terms of fine and rare wine retail? Number two, uh, what categories in Italian wine specifically are trending and which are not, which are declining? And then finally, number three, how are consumers behaving differently in terms of consumption of fine and rare wines this holiday season specifically? And and perhaps looking towards next year, what are some predictions? So, you know, just for starters, you know, we're halfway through the holiday season. What are you seeing right now at Benchmark? Uh, well, you know, as you point out, the market, the, the world economic conditions and market conditions we're seeing this year are, they're always unique, but they're, there's really some outlier things happening right now in the world. Um, and so this is a, a super strange year. I kind of, term I term the market right now is cagey and kind of cautious you know it's like okay it's you know there's been all of this talk about recession and yet we're not, according to the the people that make the call on this we're not in one yet we're seeing not just in the wine business but in you know all, so many segments of the the US market there are you know there's there's just a mood that's like reserved like people right. are not, you know, they just don't want to want to reach out. They, you know, just, they're just keeping their powder dry. I guess is a, is a great way to say it. So it's it's a cagey, cautious, strange market. And twenty three versus twenty two, you, you know, looking at numbers, they're you know we're they're they're not that different in terms of the sales mm. velocity. They're about the same for us. We did see a reduction this year in contribution from the most elite categories of wine. Okay, interesting. You know, the the things like, you know, Bordeaux, DRC, Loire, First Growth Burgundy, um, or Grand Cru Burgundy, excuse me, those kinds of things, they shrank this year versus what we did last year. And yet, and at the same time, we saw some growth in the two hundred to four hundred dollar price range, you know, which, which was interesting. And that's something that you know that's kind of unique to this year. Now, one of the things I want to point out about our specific situation is we're fine and rare retailers. So what that means is we purchase a great deal of the wine we we sell from collectors, and right. then we sell it to other collectors. So, you know, we're sort of a sort of a mercantile in, in a way in respect to that. So we have wine incoming from people who are collectors, wine going out to them. And that makes us a little bit different than, than than your traditional retailer that's buying wines directly from wineries or from distribution, which you know we do that as well. It's just not the only part of our business. Got it. And so that puts us in a unique situation to sort of see what's going on at the different levels. And we collect data on all of that, and as well as the auction market in general, which you know gives us an understanding of sort of what's going on with with prices. And that brings me to I guess my last point on this, which is we're seeing slightly softer demand for collectors to sell wine, and I believe that that's probably related to the fact that over 22 and 23, we've seen a very small but notable softening of price points in all of those different price categories and uh, and wine categories we were just talking about. Hmm, interesting. So Jay, you mentioned that you're seeing less supply of some of those really fine and rare wines. It's called First Growths and Grand Cru's, et cetera. Where do, what do you think is happening there? What is causing that lower supply? I, 
so I think that you know we're seeing a, a slight, a very slight softening of prices in the auction market, and I think that that is that has a direct effect on collectors that regularly trade in these things. They see the prices go down there sort of incentivized to hold on to it for just a little bit longer to mm. see if the price re- comes back up to where it was. We certainly saw some price peaks during the go-go market of 2021. Right. Which like the whole wine industry talks about how insane the last half of 2020 and most of 21 was. And it certainly was. We see that in our numbers as well. So since then, there's been a softening of prices. And in the case of collectors, that that draws down the supply a little bit. That makes sense. Yeah, because in, in economics, you know, we know that deflation uh, and price lowering is dangerous for the market, right? So it makes sense that these suppliers would hold on to inventory as opposed to sell it at a, at a lower price and wait until the market picks back up. Indeed. Yeah. And we don't think it's something that's permanent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certainly we're in, you know, we're, we're, in, we're an active buyer all the time. So we're, we're always talking to collectors about you know, just about, you know, what the, the state of the market is, what their moods are. And that's a that's a, a fair sort of distillation of what we're hearing from everybody. Absolutely. So, Jay, let's talk a little bit about Italian wine specifically. We're, we're on the Italian wine podcast after all. But what have you seen trending categorically at Benchmark year over year this year versus last year in Italian wine specifically? So when it comes to to data, you know, we track all of the data on these things. Italian wine basically boils down to Piedmont and Tuscany and then everything else. That, that's kind of that's kind of what can be, you know, what you could track and, and sort of keep up with. And what we're seeing is for 2023, the average retail prices of uh, of Italian wine have have gone up slightly. And out of all of the different different categories that we track it's the only one that's gone up wow that's exciting all all it is slight it's tiny it's less than a percent okay but it's it's still it's it's improved and all of the other major categories grand cru red burgundy premier cru red burgundy bordeaux california cults they've all declined in the somewhere in the single digit percentage ranges for most of those those categories interesting and then splitting it splitting it down even further it's actually piedmont that's driving the success that italy is seeing tuscany is basically flat which i'll talk about that in, in a minute it's a little hard for me to understand why that's happening but it's piedmont that's actually showing some uh, some measurable price growth right in in a in what everybody has described as a down market so right. you know kudos to piedmont <laughs> way to go way to go Nebula. yeah that's that's very exciting do you have any predictions or idea you know inclinations about why we're seeing the italian wine category and the fine and rare retail space specifically trend up when a lot of other categories are are declining i i think that it's a um I think there's a little bit of a value proposition there. I, I think as the whether where there's volatility in the rest of the categories, I think that that broad-based collectors are looking at at Italy and going, okay, well, well, this is stable, so now's the time to be involved in it. Okay. And I think that there's a lot of uncertainty about both the economy and the economic situation, as well as all of those other wine categories, with uncertainty and confusion in 
and the economic mood set. And then that paired with the prices getting a little softer and going down a little bit on the other, the other segments. I, I think everybody's just holding and kind of watching. I, I believe that this is going to spell at some point the beginning of a new bull market on this sort of stuff. People are going to suddenly realize, oh, hey, wow, the economy's not as bad as I thought it was. And there's certainly a lot of people that are out there saying that now. And these prices are depressed. So let's grab them. And I think that that's coming. And so when, when that happens, Italy might not look so good by comparison because it may, you know, if it, if it continues doing what it's doing, then it's just going to do what everything else is doing. Right. The one piece of this really hard for me to understand is why Piedmont is eclipsing Tuscany mm. right now as a, as a subcategory of Italian wine because Tuscany just ha- is in the, this window of a string of phenomenal vintages. Right. It's 16 maybe, you know, is one of those kind of years which people would call vintage of the century, hmm. followed by 17 and 18, both of which were, you know, outstanding to classic ratings by all of the pundits. Right. And so so it's, it's a little hard to look at, at especially Brunello, and understand why it took a, a dip from what happened to it in 21, which I can clearly associate with the release of the 2016. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if it has anything to do with consumer preference around stylistically uh, wines that are a little bit lighter in style, you know, in terms of what we're seeing trend-wise and just people's palates. It's possible. And and I actually was going to touch on that, when, you know, kind of moving out of the, the Piedmont-Tuscany paradigm here and talk about, okay, well, what about the rest of it? There's you know, certainly a whole bunch of, of, of Italy that's not Piedmont and Tuscany. And the, the superstars that are in Italy outside of Tuscany and Piedmont are like the level drops off dramatically mm-hmm. when you once you get outside of those two zones. You know, you have you have the superstars in the Veneto like Quintarelli and Del Forno, and you know, those have the kind of price points that you see with Gaia and Soldera and you know, all of these super collectible. Piedmont and Tuscan wines, but then once you get past there, like there's still really remarkable uh, rarities to be found. But for the most part, the prices just they they become a fraction of what those other wines sell for. Mm-hmm. So that said, one of the superstar areas that I see coming on board, and I, there was some there was some press on this just yesterday. It was Etna Rosso. Mm. So lighter style red, Norello Mascalese, Norello Cappuccio. You know the, the key grape varieties there and high altitude volcanic soils. This I think of Etna Rosso like Italy's Burgundy. You know this right. is this 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 is these are the these are the crisp you know red fruited sort of high acid wines of and the, the greatest ones of the Italian range. Right. And yesterday yesterday I saw some some press saying that uh, the consortia there voted to. Go all in to obtain DOCG for Etna. Exciting, yeah, and I think which I thought was very exciting, and I, and I think it's also telling that there's a lot of serious attention around those wines now, and that's that's a very lovely thing to see. Totally, and I think you know actually at Automina Gourmet in Sicily this past fall, I know they did a comparative blind tasting of Etna Rosso and Burgundy, so that comparison you drew, oh, really? yeah, I think they're they're noticing it as well there, and they're also going into from what I hear, 
more of a, a rating by site and location. So really looking mm-hmm. at, you know, the crew system in Burgundy in terms of how to further classify and distinguish the wines. So um, I think that's a really apt, you know, comparison and prediction. And, and I expect we'll see that Rosso continue to become more prevalent in this fine wine and collectible space, which is exciting for me. I love those wines. And it'll be fun to drink more back vintages and, and kind of geek out on them more. I'm deeply looking forward to that. And it, as you point out, it's a, it's a very fun thing to talk about with producers. And, and this is, you know, at this point in time and kind of the, the, the global level of wine knowledge about Mount Etna is it really resides with the producers right now because, you know, when you, you talk with them, they'll be able to tell you this vineyard sits on a lava flow that started in 1961 and it's black lava. And this, this wine comes from one that was from 1948 that's red lava or, you know, or other distinctions. And it's, it has the same level of insane detail that you have in the vineyards of Burgundy. We just don't know it yet. We don't know, you know, we're not accustomed to it outside of that, that set of producers and them sharing their knowledge is, is lovely. So I couldn't be more enthusiastic about what's going on there. Yeah, that's great. I see interestingly more attention on Italian white wines than ever oh, before. Okay. Which, you know, there's that old saying in, in Italy that, you know, what the first job of a wine is to be red, <laughs> which I think is hilarious, but Italy produces spectacular white wines definitely in especially in certain places uh i'm a i'm a giant freely fan me too you know so it's really lovely to see the wines of 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 italy the white wines of italy from those special regions begin to gain more and more traction Mm -hmm. and you know and a third thing that i'm kind of watching in, in italian wine is i'm waiting on prosecco to draw attention to other Italian sparkling wines. Mm, to have like that that kind of halo effect of getting people interested in more Francio Corta, Frento Doc, or some of the more Methodo classical wines. Both of those things. Yeah, both of those places, especially. I, I've, I've long been a fan of Francio Corta. It's always baffled me as to why it didn't have a slightly more, more prominent role mm-hmm. in the world stage. And so, you know, I'm, I, and I think that I didn't have this realization right away, but after, you know, we were, we're what a good now six or eight years into this, this evolution that Prosecco has made into the States market, you know, I'm kind of hoping that that, that now that it's become a staple for people that it's going to draw attention to, okay, well, what, well, what else is great in bubbles in Italy? Right. Then, then that discovery begins to happen. So I've, I've got my, I don't know that that's a trend yet, but I've really got my fingers crossed for it to become one. Yeah, me too. Me too. So just to sum up, Jay, I mean, we're, we're looking at in the fine and, and rare retail space in Italian wine, Etna Rosso, uh, whites, and especially for Yuli, it sounds like, and Piedmont and, uh, and Nebbiolo seem to be three things that we really want to keep our eye on and see how they evolve in, in the coming, in the coming years. But that's that's exciting for Italian wine overall to hear that in benchmarks business, at least you're seeing the category trend up while others kind of remain flat or even trend down. So good news for us and our listeners here on the Italian Wine Podcast. Yes, we think so. Yes, definitely. You know, we love to talk about or love and hate to talk about the next generation wine consumer. And, you know, I think it's worth talking to you, Jay, about this specifically because you know, you're dealing with a really niche consumer and what we 
probably expect to be typically an older consumer in the fine and, and rare retail space. So how is Benchmark approaching that challenge the entire industry is facing of reaching new consumers, younger consumers, specifically, let's say millennials, older Gen Z, uh, into this fine and, and rare retail space? Well, marketing to collectors is probably the weirdest or one of the weirdest parts of the wine business. It, it's, it's, there's, there's not like somewhere you can go where collectors just are. Right. You know, you can't, you can't just pick a spot and go, okay, well, that's where all the wine collectors hang out. So, uh, or, or what they read. And so this is, this is where we're going to put our attention to a lot of, a, a lot of the, attention we get from collectors comes from other collectors. It's, it's word of mouth, it's reputation. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have a slightly different entree into, into the, the world of marketing and the consideration of demographics than a more traditional retailer would have. That said, we are beginning to see some younger collectors start to surface. Now our, our, metrics and our demographic metrics are dominated by the boomer and, and less so the Gen X cohort. Mm-hmm. But that's that's mo- that's where most of our business is. And so it's it's notable for us that we're now starting to see, you know, collectors in their late thirties and early forties beginning to emerge, which is the sort of the center of the the next demographic cohort, the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that begins to raise the question about, okay, what, well, what, what's going on that, you know, or how can we access more people that are interested in that? And, you know, certainly all of the standard things that everybody is doing, you know, different social media avenues, but just, we're, we're just trying to keep the name of Benchmark present in the serious collector space. And knowing that that word of mouth action that happens with collectors is going to lead us to the next generation of collectors. Right. But that said, I'll, I'll tag back to sparkling wine. I was talking about just a second ago is one of the things that, that occurs to me is that there, you know, you're seeing new media attention on new things. And so let's talk about formula one for a second. I'm a, I'm a, veteran Formula One fan. I've been, I started watching Formula One in 1999, and I don't think I've missed a race. Oh, wow. Since. I can't say the same, Jay, but, but that's why but you're here to talk to us about it. <laughs> well, so, so I bring that up because I think there's something really interesting that, that loops back to what we were just talking about. You know, one of the classic things that happens at the end of an F1 race is there's the podium celebration. And if, there, if when you're not in a Middle Eastern country that doesn't permit it, there's always been some kind of a showering of, of champagne that goes on at the after they present the trophies. Well, right now that's not champagne. Did did you were you aware of that? Uh, I am aware of that because of all the work we do in Italian wine, I believe it's Francia Corta or it's Trento Doc. It's that's Trento Doc. It it's, is. It's Cantina Ferrari. It's Ferrari. And that's right. It's. It's been Ferrari since 2021 or two, and they're in the middle of, a, I think, a five-year agreement. That's amazing. So, I, you know, I think that's a really interesting thing, and it's it's sort of a, it's quizzical that the name of this wine is Ferrari because that Ferrari family has nothing or very little to do with the, the automotive Ferrari. <laughs> right. Um, they're not, they're not related. But you could trick people into thinking they're connected. Right. And it works for the, <laughs> the promotion. It's an easy misconclusion to make. That's for sure. But 
Ferrari, Cantini Ferrari is, you know, one of the most celebrated sparkling wine method, traditional sparkling wine producers in Italy, hailing from Trenta Doc. And getting that kind of attention, especially what's going on with the Drive to Succeed uh, or Drive to Survive show that's happening on Netflix, which is designed to market F1 to a whole new generation of, of people. And at the same time, it's marketing a great Italian sparkling wine to a whole new generation of people. Right. So I watch little things like that around around the world that aren't necessarily, they're not ingrained in the wine business, so to speak, but they certainly are little threads that move out to begin to expand the awareness of, of wine in a way that is novel and is new and has not really happened before. So, you know, my fingers are crossed that we're going to see some effect from that. Yeah. And that we'll start to see more of that too, of seeing wine in other spaces, whether it's, it's sports, it's entertainment and, and of the likes. And I think the sparkling wine does lend itself maybe in some ways to those occasions more than other styles, but hopefully like you said, that's a gateway and opening to seeing some other advances as well. So that's certainly exciting. And speaking of sparkling wine, just, you know, one last question, because it's the holidays. I love champagne. I'm sure most of us do. Um, talk to us a little bit more about sparkling wine sales right now at Benchmark. I just read today that Drizzly, which clearly services a different type of consumer, but nearly a quarter of their entire platform is sparkling wine sales, at least right now during mm-hmm. this time. So we know that that category is huge this time of year. So tell us a little bit more about what's happening in sparkling wine at Benchmark right now. So, so from a from a categorical standpoint, uh, another segment that is actually performing above the rest of the segments is, is champagne, especially especially Grand Marc champagne. Um, like we have we have very little little challenges with that. Actually, our challenge is finding enough of it. Good challenge to have. And it's it's across all different segments of, of champagne. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not just Tete de Cuvée, it's, it's vintage, it's, it, it's you know, brewer champagnes, all of them have, uh, you know, outstanding velocity. And we've certainly seen it be good this fall, uh, in spite of, you know, what we all think is just a sort of weird wonky market, which has various ups and downs that that's remained solid. Okay. So we're, we're enthusiastic about that and, and hoping that continues throughout December and we're doing everything we can to enhance it. And, you know, it, like I sort of alluded to champagne is, is still dominant in the category and we've not seen yet in the collector world, uh, a move towards French Accorda or Trenta doc, uh, from a collecting standpoint. Um, but you know, when we, when we do see those wines come into our hands, you know, they don't necessarily remain long because people recognize them as in almost every case in, in French Accorda is typically less expensive than an equivalent quality bottle from champagne. Right. So you know, it, it makes a it, it makes a, a great glass of bubbles that you don't have to uh, shell out quite so dearly for. Definitely. Definitely. Well, maybe you know, when we talk next year, Jay, we'll, we'll uh, see some French Accorta and Trento Doc starting to trend up more. That's that's our hope. <laughs> I'll, I'll be keeping my eye out. Yes, exactly. Well, Jay, as we wrap things up, we'll do our rapid fire quiz. We ask our guests a few questions just to capture their thoughts in the U.S. market. So number one, what is your number one tip for mastering the U.S. wine market? 
and this has long been my number one piece of advice for anybody that asks a question even close to that. Know and utilize your experts. It's the most important thing. You know, I've long advised people to have a relationship with a retailer. Right. Get to know them and let them get to know you and what you like and don't like so that it, it makes them better able to make recommendations mm-hmm. for you. And it's, just, you know, it's just like working with a sommelier in a restaurant. The sommelier knows what what's best from the kitchen that night and right. how all the wines in their cellar are working. They know that in a way that you most people can't possibly know. Totally. So rely on that. And don't be afraid of it, you know, embrace it and it will enhance your experience almost every time. Yeah. Look at them as partners. That's, that's great advice. Question number two, what is something you might've told your younger professional self about selling wine in the U S? Oh, I would, I would have told myself in 1995, which was the year I left the floor of uh, the restaurant and moved into distribution as a sales rep the first time. I would have told myself that at the top of the wine business, no wine is sold without a story. We're all storytellers and boil it down to what we do. We're here to tell stories about this stuff in the bottle that we love. And the better, the better you are at that, the more success you have and the better relationships you develop with people that are relying on you to deliver something. That's a really good reminder. I love that one. And finally, question number three, we all travel a ton in this industry. What is your favorite travel hack? Oh, well, so, you know, it's, it's, I kind of reflect back onto the time that I was in the winery side of the business and, you know, traveling to different markets to work with distributors for that. I don't know. There's so many. Um, well, my favorite one for New York City was get a Metro card as soon as you get to town. You know, not just for your own personal convenience, but all the best reps in New York City, they never get in a car. They're on the subway with a wine bag and they are running like crazy. So I made some great sales and some great relationships by being willing to get in the trenches with them and go as hard as they were. To wear comfortable shoes also. <laughs> comfortable shoes, you know, same, so in, in a, outside of New York City in a very similar thing, um, when I first started working with distributor sales reps in a car, I found myself getting car sick a lot. And it took, and that never happened to me before. And I couldn't figure it out for a couple of months until I realized what I was doing is I was reading my email on my phone while we were riding around and I was looking down at the floor. And so I learned to hold my phone up at eye level and keep the horizon in my eye That's a good while I was reading my email <laughs> and the, the car sickness the car sickness stopped immediately uh, when I started doing that. And and then and I'll add one more. I've always made this my habit. I use the plane as downtime. I was, you know, like, like all of, we're all busy. I was always tempted to pop out the laptop and start working when I was on the plane. And what I came to realize over the years was that I was way fresher if I used the plane as downtime, yeah. got some rest mm-hmm. and, and some relaxation Watch a trashy movie or something. <laughs> watch it, yeah. Watch a watch a guilty pleasure kind of movie, and then come back at it hard the next day. And I was better the next day than if I tried to work on the plane. I was it usually took me two or three days to kind of get back in my rhythm. And so I started becoming you know very serious and consistent about doing that, and it really paid off. I like that one. That's a great tip as well. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us during this very busy time of year on Masterclass US Wine Market, how can our listeners connect with you and Benchmark? 
So um, benchmarkwine.com is where you will find us and you will find you know, one of the greatest selections of fine and rare wine available anywhere on the planet at that website. And there's links to get to me and the owner, Dave Parker, and you know all of the people here who handle all of the business. So we'd love to hear from you and love to see you. Great. Thank you so much, Jay. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Juliana. It's a great pleasure. And let me know when you need me again. I'll be here for you. I will. Thank you for joining me today. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Masterclass U.S. Wine Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, hit the like and follow buttons wherever you get your podcasts.